In this passage, uh, another little snapshot of what is promised for us in the coming Messiah. We're actually going to look at the reading from 1 Kings, but this is a, a wonderful passage and another wonderful picture, another wonderful reminder of who it is who has come. Isaiah chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and he shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for the the sounds of hope that are found in this passage and in 1 Kings 4, would you grant us your spirit that we might hear those sounds and detect that hope and be encouraged by it. Come and bless us as we seek to understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last, uh, last evening, about, uh, about four o'clock, Barb and I were headed to the beach for our Sunday or Saturday afternoon ritual. It's a way to, to kind of, at least for me, to kind of decompress and, and sort of get oriented to Sunday morning. And, and what we found uh, before we headed down to the beach is that, that our whole, our whole system, our whole sewer system was plugged. You, I, don't you hate that? I mean, what a terrible thing to talk about on the third Sunday in Advent. But everything was all plugged up. I mean, the showers wouldn't drain, nothing worked. So we called a guy and he came and, and about 45 minutes to an hour later and $122.50 later, everything was working. And I thought three things. I really did. I thought three things. I am so glad I live in a place where there is indoor plumbing. Number two, I am so thankful that there is someone who can come and fix my indoor plumbing when my indoor plumbing doesn't work. And number three, I am really thankful that the day is coming when indoor plumbing won't be an issue any longer. Now, that may seem like a strange way to segue into some more thinking about Advent, 
But what you have in 1 Kings chapter 4 and actually in Isaiah chapter 2 is a couple of wonderful pictures of what is coming. A couple of wonderful pictures of what is coming. You wonder why 1 Kings 4? Have you ever been in an Advent service where 1 Kings 4, 20 to 34, where, where those verses were read? I haven't. I've thought through 30 plus, almost 40 years of being a Christian. I have no recollection of 1 Kings 4 ever having been read during an Advent series, during the season of Advent. So why 1 Kings 4? Well, here's why. These two reasons. We're asking in the first place, who is it who came? Who came all those years ago, two millennia ago, 20 centuries ago, who came? And the way we're answering that question is in this way. We're thinking typologically. This is the second thing. We're thinking about types, we're thinking about pictures, we're thinking about models, we're thinking about Old Testament images that point away from themselves in the direction of something greater than themselves. We're taking our cue from Paul in Romans 5.14 who says that Adam was a type of the one who is to come. Adam's story is not a story in and of itself. Adam's story is a story that points away from himself to someone else, to the second Adam, to the greater Adam. And so what we're doing is thinking typologically. We're thinking about these pictures and images that point away from themselves and point to someone greater, something greater. And we looked a couple of weeks ago at Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses receives a promise from God that a prophet like Moses, a greater prophet, is going to come. And who's the greater prophet? The greater prophet is Jesus, who not only receives and speaks the word of God, but he is the word of God. And then last week, we looked at Exodus 28, Aaron, the high priest, Moses' brother. Aaron, who is clothed, remember, clothed in garments of glory and beauty. And who is the greater high priest? It is Jesus who is clothed in garments of beauty, who is clothed in righteousness and loveliness and holiness, and who gives his clothing to those who need it. Aaron needed it for himself. Jesus is the greater high priest who is clothed in glory and beauty. And because he doesn't need it in the way that Aaron did, he becomes the greater high priest who can clothe those in glory and beauty, who need to be clothed in glory and beauty, who need to be clothed in righteousness and holiness. And so 1 Kings 4, here's another picture, another snapshot. What are we looking at here? We're looking at a snapshot of the greater king, a picture of the greater king. Solomon's story at the end of the day isn't about Solomon. He's a real guy, just like Aaron was real and Moses was real and Adam before them was real, a real guy who lives in a real place, in real space, in real time. But his life, his story and what he is points beyond him to something greater. And that's what we want to see in this. And we want to see three things. Again, I'm going to give you three pegs to hang things on. Three looks, if you will. A look back, a look in, and a look ahead. A look back, a look in, and a look ahead. First, a look back. 
you've got to understand 1 Kings 4 in terms of what has come before 1 Kings 4, prior to Solomon. In fact, you have to go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. If you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, you find described in Genesis 1 and 2, life as the way life is supposed to be. Life the way life is supposed to be. One of the most helpful books I've read in the last 15 years is by a man named Cornelius Plantinga. He's a philosopher. Don't let the name or his career intimidate or threaten you. Find a copy of this book. It's a book entitled, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And what he does in this book is describe life as we know it, explaining for us why it is that life is the way that it is. Why it is that plumbing gets plugged up. Why it is that people go to hospitals. Why it is there are racial tensions and ethnic divisions. Why it is that there are catastrophes. Why it is there are hurts and disappointments. We know how life is. Genesis 1 and 2 describes us, describes for us how life is supposed to be. And if you want to understand the Bible, if you want to understand these 66 books with all of their diversity and all of the difficulties that there are and can be in reading these books, books like Zephaniah and Zechariah and Leviticus, And the full range, if you want to understand what the Bible is about, the Old Testament, the New Testament, here are the things that we learn from Genesis 1 and 2 that enable us to understand the whole of the Bible. And here's the first thing. And I've produced some notes on this. If you want a copy of these notes, if you want to read this for yourself, they're on the table back there, front and back. The whole meaning, significance of the Bible on two pages. Okay? And here's the first thing, the theme. And I have to do this quickly. I have to do this quickly. But here's the first thing, the theme. The theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God. That's what it's about. The theme of the Bible is the glory of God. Listen to these words. Write this down. The glory of God seen and enjoyed in and through his gracious reign as a benevolent all-wise, and all-powerful king. That's what the Bible is about from cover to cover. The Bible is about a king. And as you read through Genesis 1 and 2, there are what I would call some motifs that tie this theme together. Many of you have heard me talk about this. But these are the motifs that tie this theme together, this overarching theme. And those motifs you find through the unfolding story that begins in Genesis 1 and 2. And you know the basic architecture because you've heard this ad nauseum. The basic architecture of the Bible as this story unfolds is what? Creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. Creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration or consummation. And I challenge you to read through your Bible and you'll see these five motifs under this rubric of this one theme expressed in this four-act play. You'll see these five motifs from beginning to end. 
And they are what makes sense of 1 Kings 4. And here are the five motifs. If you have a kingdom, what do you have to have? you got to have a king, it seems like. And Genesis 1 and 2 describe that king. In fact, Genesis 1 and into chapter 2 show that king as the creator and sustainer of everything that is made. And at the end of that creation narrative, this is the important thing about the creation narrative, you see the enthronement of the king. You see him entering into the enjoyment of everything that he has made, ruling in benevolence and kindness over everything that he's made. So you have a king. If you have a king or a ruler, to try to alliterate this, if you have a king, you will also have governance or you will have a rule, okay? And if you look at Genesis 1 and 2, you will find that God speaks. He governs, and he governs his people, and he gives them his word. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He tells them how to live. And what is that rule? Let's think about it. This is a king who is good and just and benevolent and merciful and kind. And when he speaks, you know, you and I are never going to understand never going to understand what it is to be a Christian and what it is to have God's word until we understand that when God speaks, everything that he says is wisdom for his people. It's not just truth in some objective sense, like two plus two is four, which is a very helpful thing to know, particularly as mathematics gets elaborated and expanded, and you realize that as mathematics gets elaborated and expanded, if you stand on the 14th floor of a building, there are certain other laws that kick in, and you begin to realize that God's speaking about and in an orderly universe begins to make a difference when you're standing on the floor of that 14th story building. You don't jump because mathematics and physics and all of the rest of those kinds of things will have their natural effects. When God speaks, he always speaks to give us his wisdom. And he does that for Adam and Eve, doesn't he? Every tree in the garden you have access to, eat freely of every tree in the garden. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, cultivate it, nurture it, delight in it, enjoy it. It's all very good. Love it, embrace it the way I do. Stay away from this place. It's dangerous. That's wisdom. So there is a ruler and there is rule. There is a king and there is governance. If you're going to have a kingdom... You've got to have a couple of other things at least. You've got to have people, don't you? You've got to have people. A king that's got no people has got no kingdom. It's like a leader who thinks he's a leader who's got nobody following him. He's out for a walk in the park. But God blesses the man and the woman and they're to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, nurture it, cultivate it. You see, they're going to fill this earth. They're going to populate this earth with citizens, with image bearers. You have people. And then what do you have? What do the people have to have? What does the king have to have? He's got to have a place for his people, right? So you've got a ruler, you have a rule. 
You have people, you have place, the whole earth, not just the garden. See, this is a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. They weren't supposed to stay in that garden. That garden was in a particular place in the midst of the earth. What they were supposed to do is start in that garden, be fruitful, multiply, and press the beauty of that garden out until it encompasses the whole of the earth so that the whole of the earth is filled with glory bearers and the glory of the Lord. That's what they were supposed to do, fill the earth. The earth was their place. Now there's a fifth thing, and this is critical. And not all kingdoms have this. And again, some of you have heard me say this. Not all kingdoms have this fifth thing. You can have a kingdom without having this fifth thing. The fifth thing that characterizes this kingdom is prosperity, abundance. Some of you who know me fairly well know that I take shots at the so-called prosperity gospel. The reason is this, it's too small. It's too here and now. It's not big enough. God's design for his people and for the whole of the creation was that they and the whole of the creation should pulsate with life and abundance. And the reason for God's blessing The reason that God pronounces blessing upon the man and the woman and the whole of the creation is to ensure, that's what his blessing does, it is to ensure that everything fulfills the design for which it was made and that it prospers. And the biblical word for this is the word shalom. Shalom. That's the biblical word. That's the big idea that stands written large over the whole of the creation. And it means more than simply peace or a cessation to conflict. It means a pervasive sense and experience of well-being. It means no stopped-up plumbing. It means no hunger. It means no racial tension. It means tranquility and well-being and abundance pervasively. That is the fifth feature of the kingdom of God. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 are all about. Those are the five motifs that you can see running through the whole of the scriptures, through this four-act play that tie the whole of the Bible together under this rubric, the kingdom of God. You see it in Abraham. Just go read Abraham's story and see if you don't find those five motifs. You see it in the life of Israel. Go read the story of Israel and see if you don't find those five motifs. A king and rule and people and a place and prosperity, a land flowing with milk and honey. So when you come to 1 Kings 4, what do you see? Don't you see a picture of the original? Don't you see a model of the original? Listen to the language. I mean, I haven't even talked about 1 Kings 4 yet. I've just set it up. Is there a king? There is. There is. Solomon. Solomon is a picture of the great king, but he is a king. 
Is there wisdom? Is there rule? Is there law? Is there truth? Yes. And Solomon, who prayed for that wisdom and who was given that wisdom by the truly wise one, wisdom Solomon finds that people come from all over the world to hear what? To hear his wisdom. To hear him explain the world as it is. The truth about God and man and everything else. And he even, he's even what we call a natural philosopher. He even writes about reptiles and plants and all of these marvelous and beautiful things that God has made. His wisdom is envied by the wise people of the day. Are there people? Look at verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. As many as the sand by the sea. What does that sound like? Sounds vaguely reminiscent of Abram, doesn't it? I'm going to prosper you, bless you. Your descendants will be more numerous than sand by the sea. Stars in the heavens. See, I'm telling you, it's all there. People, 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 people. And place, the land. It's an entire region. Solomon governs this whole region from the Euphrates, which is what is now Iraq and Iran and that that part of the world over there, all the way to the edge of Egypt, encompassing the whole of the thing. A land, a land. And what is it that characterizes this land? What is it that characterizes these people? What is it that characterizes this rule and reign of this king? It is prosperity, isn't it? Verse 21, everyone ate and drank. And this text, the ESV says, they were happy But in the original, what it really means literally is they were making merry. They were making merry. God rest you merry gentlemen and women. They were making merry. They were rejoicing. They were celebrating. And the end of the text says they were doing this all the days of Solomon. Verse 24 says, there was peace on all sides. That's that word, shalom. There was peace. No hostilities, no threat of hostility. Verse 25, I love this one. Every man lived under his own vine and fig tree. That is, every citizen of the realm had his or her own individual parcel of ground. And what would you expect out of those parcels of ground? You would expect the blessing of God to make them fruitful so that everyone could eat and everyone could drink and everyone could rejoice. What is it that characterizes the gracious rule of this king? The kingdom is flourishing and it is shalom. It is shalom that all of the people experience. Who's the king? Solomon, whose name is derived from the Hebrew word shalom. Okay, now what is 1 Kings 4? Let me tell you what it is. It's a snapshot. I might get myself in trouble for putting it this way, but that's okay. It'll it'll get you to write me an email this week. It's a snapshot, not actually of what 
was. How do I know that? Because even in Solomon's day, even when there is this wonderful description of peace and prosperity and blessedness under his gracious rule and reign with people coming from the four corners of the earth to hear his wisdom, people died. People died. This is a snapshot of what is to come. This is a picture that is designed to be a signpost along the way, directing our attention away from itself to something even greater. This is something which keeps the hope alive, the hope that a king will come, as was promised David in 2 Samuel 7, a king who will sit upon the throne of David not for a period of 40 years, not with hiccups in his rule and reign, not with a general sense of peace, but who will sit on the throne of David forever and govern perfectly and purely and completely in righteousness. This is not a picture of life as it truly was. It is a picture of life as God in his purposes intends it to be. People died. And here's the second thing. There's just a little dissonant chord even in the text. In an otherwise beautiful picture, there is a chord of dissonance and darkness in this text. And it has to do with horses. It has to do with 40,000 stalls for horses. That's a lot of horse stalls that can occupy a lot of horses. And it's in direct violation of Deuteronomy 17, which forbids the king from amassing numerous horses. Why is that? Oh, gosh, take this. Why is that? Because kings will tend to trust in the strength of the horse. And Psalm 147.10 says that God does not delight in the strength of the horse, but in those who fear him. Right there, at the beginning of Solomon's reign, there is this dissonant chord, this bit of darkness in the midst of all of this light and blessing, which ought to tell us this is not the end of the story. It's a signpost along the way that points us in the direction of the greater king. And so what do we do then? Third, after having looked back, Having looked in, we look ahead. We look ahead, don't we? Luke 1, verses 31 to 33. This is after, by the way, there were lots and lots and lots of kings across the whole history of Israel and Judah, right? Lots and lots and lots of kings. And after nearly 600 years, six centuries without a king, the last king, the last king of Judah exercised his rule and reign until the Babylonians marched on the city of Jerusalem in 589 and destroyed Jerusalem and took the people away captive. 
nearly six centuries without a king, nearly four centuries without a prophetic word from God, an angel comes to Mary and says to her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, Deliverer, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And when the angels announce the birth of this king, what's the first word out of their mouths? Shalom. Shalom. Read it. It's in Luke chapter 1. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, shalom, peace among men with whom he is pleased. When Jesus comes, what does he do? He comes as the greater king, inaugurating the reign of shalom to the glory of his father and for the good of his people. But when he comes to do what he does, to inaugurate the kingdom that he brings, he keeps us looking, he keeps us watching, he keeps us waiting for the time when he will return again. And he is coming again. He is coming again. He came in weakness and humility to inaugurate a kingdom so that the world around could have have a scent so that there could be a fragrance, so that there could be a visual demonstration of the difference of that kingdom in the midst of the world. He came to inaugurate that kingdom. And he will continue to rule from his throne until that kingdom is brought to full expression and First Kings 4 becomes a reality in totality, fully, without any hiccups and without any dark and dissonant chords. Jesus comes as the greater prophet, the greater priest, and the greater king. 